Good evening. <laughs> Welcome to Regeneration. Uh, we are in the book of First Samuel, going into chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these people. I pray, Lord, that you would bless them. That uh, for those who are in despair, that you would give them hope. For those who are in a joyous state, that they would give you praise. Uh, not forgetting that uh, tough times are ahead for them. Not because you are mean, but because you care about our character. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we study Hannah's song this evening, that you would speak to us individually for whatever we need, particularly in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been studying about a woman named Hannah and her choice to give up the center of her, her earthly joy, or the center of her happiness, namely in the son, her only son, Samuel. And before we delve into the text, uh, keep in mind that this takes place at the temple where, where she uh, is to deliver her dear son Samuel. And just to set the scene in your mind that this is happening at the temple and, and that you're, you're, you're envisioning what's going on there. So Hannah goes up to the temple to pray. And in her song, we have her response and her, her prayer of praise for Yahweh's gift to her. So verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smiled at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So before we go into what Hannah is doing, let's define what Hannah's horn is in verse 1. And it's actually also in verse 10. And the term horn means authority. And you'll notice that it opens Hannah's song in verse 1 and it closes her song in verse 10. It opens with her exalted horn. And then it concludes in verse 10 with that of the Messiah. Now what is Hannah doing in verse 1? Her heart is rejoicing. Her horn is exalted. And she is smiling at her enemies. Now how can anyone be so celebratory, so joyful, when she has given up a key to her happiness? How is that possible? And so the answer is in verse 2. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Now, there is a joy in God's salvation. And what does this mean? Well, it's a description of God's attributes. It's, it's a hymn. This is what a hymn is. It's a celebration of the glorious attributes of the character of God. But how can Hannah be praising God right now? She's, she's going to give up her pride, her joy, and her life hasn't been incredibly easy up to this point with Peninnah's continual harassment. And the very gift she was given by God, she is now giving up. That delivered her from all those problems. And it's not like she's given up an iPod. right? This is, this is her baby son. The son that helped deliver her from the very taunts that drove her to misery. It's this boy. How can she praise God right now? It's simply because God is to be praised. She has given to God in a committed way and she has come into submission to God. So now the natural thing for her is, is praise. It's joy. And this is kind of like a foretaste of heaven. You know, once we've tasted what Hannah has discovered, we will understand her song more deeply here. Now, Hannah had an understanding that God is holy. His, he's incomparable. And he's an incomparable rock. 
The God of Israel is the only God that has all the power to act and the willingness to do so, and he can reverse anything. And he wills to do so. So when we look at true power, true power serves the lowly. Or as Hannah understands it, he's not friendly to the arrogant. Verse 3, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. God is really intelligent, right? And He knows everything. And we're not going to impress Him with the little that we know. So what is there to be arrogant about? Now let's take Hannah's song and we're going to break it into sections because it seems that the song is broken into three sections. Verses 1 through 3 is one section, verses 4 through 8, another section, and then verses 9 through 10. Now verses 1 through 3 show us how happy, how elated Hannah was over God's salvation in, in particular manners, matters of Hannah's life. And the first section of Hannah's song show us the relief God granted to Hannah in her distress. Now do you, do you notice the repeated pronouns, uh, personal pronouns in verse 1? Let's read that again. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smiled at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. My heart, my horn, I smiled, I rejoice. This shows us that Hannah begins with her own particular experiences. And in verse 2, she gives a confession of faith. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. And then she has a word of admonition in verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Interesting thing is that in reading verse 3, we may think that Hannah may be directing this um, towards Peninnah. But she isn't. Peninnah is addressed in this admonition, but it's not just Peninnah. Because... The first two verbs in Hebrew are in plural form, if you look at them in, in the Hebrew. And so is the word your in verse 3 when, when looked at the Hebrew. It's, it's plural form. So verse 3 is a general warning to all who are proud, all who are arrogant, all who are self-sufficient, self-righteous boasters. And Hannah is giving praise for Yahweh's salvation granted in all of her crises. Not just the one that she got delivered from with Peninnah. So let's just term this a micro-salvation. Okay? Something that is particularly directed towards Hannah. Now we go into the second section of Hannah's song, verses 4-8, through where Hannah expands about the way Yahweh delivered her is, is characteristic of the way that He rules the world. Verses 4-8. through The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. Notice how Hannah moved from her particular life in verses 1 through 3 to general life in verses 4 through 8. And we see here that what Yahweh has done for Hannah is a reflection of how He works. In Thea and 
Van Helsema's, I think it's Van Helsema's. Um, he wrote this book, and the book was called This Was John Calvin. And Van Helsema writes about the death of Calvin's wife, uh, Idolette, and how Calvin suffered. And Calvin wrote to his friend William Farrell these words. May the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction which would certainly have overcome me had not he who raises up the prostrate, strengthens the weak, and refreshes the weary stretched forth his hand from heaven to me. What was Calvin saying in this letter? He was saying that he would surely have been crushed, but he knew a Lord who, who raises up the prostrate who strengthens the weak, who refreshes the weary. And that very Lord had again acted in character in Calvin's grief. And that's what Hannah is saying. She was saying that she was ready to give up. She had enough. She couldn't take it anymore from Peninnah. But but Yahweh gave her strength. You know, she was barren, but He made her fruitful. She was poor, but he, He made her rich. But that isn't too surprising, is it? That's who our God is. That's who He is. Now looking at these five verses, do you notice a theme in these verses, four through eight, in these five verses? There is a theme here, and and the theme is reversal. There's a theme of reversal. In verse four, there is a reversal of strength. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. And then in verse five, there's a reversal of hunger. There is a reversal of reproduction. Those who were full have have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. In verse 6, there is a reversal of life. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. And then in verse 7, there is a reversal of wealth. There is a reversal of position. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. But then we get to verse 8, which isn't a stress on reversal, but a stress on raising. The raising of the poor and those who are in need. So now, why is this part of Hannah's song? Because we know she wasn't poor or needy in the financial sense, right? She brought three bulls for the sacrifice. If you're broke, you don't do that. So this is referring to something more than just a monetary issue. How was Hannah poor? She was poor in social status because children gave women their social status back in this ancient time. She was poor in position. She was poor in confidence. She was poor in dignity. In her mind, she was poor. But God was and still is able to raise the needy and reverse the fortunes of people who are in a poor state. Let's look at verse 8 again. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He has set the world upon them. Now let's just read that last part of verse 8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. God controls the very foundation of life itself. He's able to change anything. In Walter Brueggemann's commentary on Samuel, Brueggemann's this Old Testament scholar and author, he writes this of Hannah's song. The hope of the poor and weak is rooted in the foundational power of the Creator. 
The poem thus links the majesty of Yahweh's sovereignty over creation with the hope of the marginal. Now let's look at the final section of Hannah's song, verses 9 through 10, where our horizon is to be broadened and our view is to be expanded from this micro-salvation that she experiences directly towards her to now a more macro-salvation. Verse 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So we came from Hannah's particular experiences in verse 1 through 3 to the way Yahweh rules in verses 4 through 8 to how it will be when Yahweh completely, fully, and visibly rules in this last section in verses 9 through 10. So we've come from this micro-salvation in verses 1 through 3, from Yahweh's characteristic ways in verses 4 through 8, to now this macro-salvation in verses 9 through 10. Now let me try to make it a little clearer. Verses 4 through 8 tell us what will happen when God rules, when God acts. And He does have a tendency to do that, doesn't He? He doesn't just kind of like throw it out there and then excuse Himself. He, he's... He's active. He's dynamic in our lives. And so in verses 9 and 10, we're we're given the final result. We're given the grand finale, the, the deliverance of God's people, the destruction of those who oppose God, and the judgment of the ends of the earth. And here we have Hannah's expectation of Yahweh to accomplish these things through His King, through His Anointed One. Now do you see a logical progression here? Do you see a progression of Hannah's prayer? If we, if we just look at 1 Samuel just superficially, we won't catch the depth of Hannah's song. We'll just think, no, nah, that's kind of cool. You know, she was, she was made fun of. She was harassed by Peninnah. But, but now she has a kid, so everything's cool now. And so Peninnah will stop bugging her. What a cool story. Yeah, that's great. That's the lesson there. It's more than that. It's more than that. This is not just a cool Sunday church story. This is actually a big deal. Right? This is a manifestation of the way God rules and how He will usher in His kingdom. Right? Hannah's relief, her micro-deliverance, is an example of the way God works in each of our lives and the way He will work when He brings His kingdom in its fullness to macro-deliverance. In God's micro-salvation, He, he blessed Hannah with, with this foretaste of greater things to come. And it's a, it's a demonstration of how God works His macro-salvation when He ushers in His kingdom in grand style just from these little things in the beginning from each individual's life to the greater things. Now think about this because it's important. And let's, let's just refer to Psalms chapter 40, verse 2 for a second. He also brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. Every time God lifts you out of the miry clay and sets your feet upon a rock, it's a sample, it's an example of the coming kingdom of God. And they are uh, samples of the full deliverance, the macro salvation that will be ours in the last days. Now think about what a wedding band symbolizes, right? Right? If you ask a happily married woman about her wedding band, she will likely admit that the ring is just a token. It is just a sign of the love that her husband has for her. And she will acknowledge that it's only a sign. 
It's only a symbol and that the ring is definitely not the love itself. Right? But that the real thing, the real love, is much greater than the sign or the symbol this, this is supposed to be symbolic of. But, but she's not going to reason to herself or think less of this. She's, she won't reason that it's only a symbol and, and she, she just might as well sell it at a pawn shop because then she can have some money, right? No. Because the deeper reality is it signifies something she treasures very, very dearly. And even though it's pretty insignificant, it's just a piece of metal. But it symbolizes something greater. It's the same for these micro-salvations that God works in each of our lives. He gives us these smaller clues, these smaller evidences. He leaves us to show us He is King. And He has a strange way of raising the poor from the dust and lifting the, the needy from the ash heap to make them sit in the heavenly realms with Jesus as princes. And you think about all these micro-salvations God has, has weaved into your life. And, and remember what He told us in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now let's look at verse 9 because there's a key agenda item here or a key idea in verse 9. Which is God's concern with morality. The truth is that ultimate power and justice are inseparable in God. And we can see in verse 10 that it isn't too wise to fight against God. Now how do we, how do we contend or, or oppose God? How do we do that? Now we are an adversary of God when we don't help to raise the needy or the lowly, either spiritually or physically. We oppose God when we are immoral, when we are wicked, Brueggemann writes, The wicked are those who rely on their own strength. People like Penina or the Philistines. Against the judging, ruling power of Yahweh, arrogant human strength cannot prevail. Let's look at the last sentence of verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This verse is stressing God's actions of judgment. Which means helping His chosen leaders. God will strengthen and exalt them. He will help those who lead and bless His people. And there's a description of God in verses 2 through verses 10. Verses 2 through 10. And then in the last sentence of verse 10, we're given the fact that He will help leadership. Those who are His anointed. And ultimately, it's Jesus. Jesus is the anointed. Jesus is the king. And you notice horn is mentioned again. The song begins with her horn being exalted, her authority being blessed, and ends going beyond her horizon to that of the king. The Messiah. Our experience of of micro-salvation helps us to see the the larger, the greater picture of macro-salvation. What the Lord has in store for us as a kingdom at large, right? And our personal salvation is just for us, right? No, it's not. It's not just for us. Whatever God does within us, it also blesses other people. It also has an impact with others, doesn't it? But we are part of a greater issue that will result in the blessing of others and turn it into something that's even greater here. And our authority must eventually point to the horn or authority of the king. It has to point to Jesus. That's where our authority is at. It's not who we are as people. It's not 
you know, anything that we represent, it's, it's Jesus. So, so that's Hannah's song. And after reading it through and listening to a study about it, might there be a New Testament counterpart to Hannah's song? Can you think of one where, where, the New Te- where there's a New Testament mother who also sung a song very similar to this one? Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And you'll see how similar this song is to Mary's. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. Micro. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy on those who fear him from generation to generation. Moving towards macro. He has shown strength with his arms. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Do you hear any similar themes between that of Hannah and Mary? I hear four. I hear a theme of joy. I hear a theme of God's care for exalting the lowly. I hear God being against arrogance. And I see the theme of reversal. And in looking at these verses 54 and 55, it seems like there's a correspondence to verse 10 in 1 Samuel chapter 2 in that it's exalting, it's strengthening leaders. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And then in verse 10, 1 Samuel chapter 2, He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The reason for helping leaders is not for their egos, but for the blessings of the people of God. And Mary begins with, her good fortune, and ends with the blessing of the larger community. And, you know, all biblical blessings do this. Even in our own lives, how God works in our own lives, how He he does these micro things in our lives, and it kind of broadens it to the, the gospel message. It broadens it to the kingdom of God, right? And people grow spiritually when they realize that God wishes not only to save them, but to them to make them a part of his greater service to the world. And both Hannah and Mary had had this extremely high view of God. But how did they get that high view of God? They got such an understanding because they were both extremely committed to God. And they were willing to risk everything for God. And Hannah risked her happiness in the form of giving up her only child at the time. Baby Samuel. Well, more like preschooler Samuel. After she wasn't able to bear children, after taking all that abuse from Peninnah, Mary risked in the form of being pregnant without being married, which back in that day, you were in trouble. Right? And, And losing her reputation, losing her respectability... 
To have the joy and the knowledge that these women had of God is not possible without commitment and without risk-taking. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for these examples of uh, godly people, godly women, Hannah and Mary. And Lord, how they were so committed to you and, and were willing to risk to be your servants. And Lord, help us to identify those, those things that you've weaved into our lives, those micro-salvations, those micro-deliverances, those things that you've done particularly for us. But don't have us forget that it, it is to direct us towards Jesus, to direct us towards the kingdom of God, to direct us towards the gospel for greater things to come. And we are expecting you to come back, Lord. So it's, it's the greatest thing of all. Lord, help us to recognize uh, who you are and not be so uh, insulated with the things that are happening just for us, but help us to see the bigger picture as well. In Jesus' name, amen.